Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Farron Smith-Neme. Uh, Farron uh, has written about film and film history for Criterion, Film Comments, Sight & Sound, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other outlets. Uh, in 2014, she published a novel, Missing Reels, and these days she can be found at her new Substack, Self-Styled Siren. I'll have a link to that in the newsletter. Uh, make sure you check it out. Sign up. Um, but what we are talking about today is a very exciting and very special a uh, new feature on uh, the greatest release of the greatest film of all time, uh, Citizen Kane on 4K UHD uh, for the Criterion Collection uh, has a big, huge new set out now. It has literally, I mean, I, I you could spend three or four work days just going through all of the extras on this, the commentary tracks, multiple commentary tracks. There's uh, a BBC uh, documentary that is essentially as long as the film itself almost. I mean, it's, it is just, it is a, it is a massive set. It's a, it's a, an entire semester of Citizen Kane knowledge on one, uh, one, one collection. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about your interview, uh, the, the interview that you do on the, on the, on the, on the disc, because I think it's really interesting to, uh, help understand how the film uh, came into existence and the challenges it faced uh, upon both ma- both making it and upon release. Um, it's a really interesting little business of Hollywood backstory, and I want to I want to fill folks in on this. So, uh, thanks for being on the show, Farron. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, how how the the uh, the origin of uh, Citizen Kane. Right? What what was the impetus of this? How did um, you know uh, Orson Welles and uh, uh, Mr. Mankiewicz come up with this, this movie and get, get it rolling. Well, I mean, I think, I think that, um, her, Herman Mankiewicz had, had kind of wanted to write about, um, about like a, a press baron for a long time. And, and Orson Welles had, had been in Hollywood already for a while and they were batting around, um, different suggestions. And I think they, they hit on this notion of writing an, an American story, um, and thought, you know, that this, was going to be good because um, all of, you know, there were a lot of really colorful businessmen um, a, around this time. And, uh, you know, so they, I think, you know, they did pretty much latch on to William Randolph Hearst as like a primary inspiration. But you know, one thing I discovered when I was doing research was that he was by no means the only one. Um, imagine my surprise to discover that there was this weird kind of trend at the time for, uh, you know, like magnates to go out and try and make their wives into opera stars. <laughs> 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 one guy actually built the Chicago Opera House um, for for his wife, and uh, and there was a, another one who just spent years kind of, and none of them were particularly good singers, and it was this strange kind of thing that I think they kind of um, welded to um, a disguised version of Hearst and Marion Davies, um, unfortunately, somewhat to Davies' detriment, which you know was something we discussed. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask about that because this is uh, I, I, I know it's a subcurrent in in some of the uh, some of the films that have been made about Citizen Kane, uh, for instance, Mank and uh, RKO 281 that, that Davies kind of is treated unfairly by the, uh, by the assumption that this is a pure Hearst biopic. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think um, like it's they they both claimed and um, and I think to a certain extent they really were this naive that, you know, they thought that the fact that Susan is flagrantly untalented was going to be a big tell you know, to people that this was not really Marion Davies, right? Um, but that's not what happened. Um, I guess um, at the time this film was made, um, Davies was retired. So she wasn't as familiar to audiences. It wasn't nowadays where, you know, or even like the 70s and 80s when I grew up, when you'd flick on the TV and see like old movies. Um, once your movies were out of circulation, your you know image was too. And uh, so I think it was it was easy for people you know who may, didn't know any better to kind of uh, assume that this was you know that she was like Susan you know. Yeah. screechy yeah. and annoying and uh, and talent free and somewhat selfish and all of these were were qualities that you know did not describe Marion Davies really at, at all. Um, yeah. That wasn't what she was like. She was by most accounts delightful company. You know, I, I don't think anybody would say that about Susan Alexander. Possibly <laughs> not even Kane. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh, it's it's interesting to to uh, listen to you talk about the uh, the the efforts to advertise the movie, because, of course, you know, Hearst owns a large number of the newspapers uh, and and other uh, media outlets in America. He has uh, a fair amount of control of what people can see. Um, how was it? Uh, how how did he kind of try to. Uh, mute the the reaction to it and the the ability of folks to actually uh, know that that the movie was coming out. Well, he he tried a lot of different things. Um, it, you know, like for a while he was trying to tag um, Wells as a communist, um, and and this was it was so obvious uh, that particular maneuver that in some of the other papers, particularly the left wing ones, you know, they were like, oh, look, William Randolph Hearst is trying to call Orson Welles a communist. You, everybody knew like what it was about. The one thing you will not find in the non-Hearst press is real, at least as far as I can tell, um, is real references to his affair with Marion Davies. That was the third rail. You didn't go there. I mm. found like at least one, a couple of fan magazines that if you were in the know, it was like dropping a cinder block on your head in terms of hints. You know, they were like, oh, and he took his entire and we do mean his entire entourage on a picnic, you know, like you were supposed to know that meant Marion. But for the most part, they wouldn't refer to that. So anyway, you know, the, the whole communist angle kind of didn't go anywhere. And uh, and what Hearst lit on um, and was. I think it eventually quite quite harmful. He decided to give it the silent treatment. Mm. Um, I, I would go into newspapers um, from the that era, and uh, a Hearst newspaper would have, uh, let's say, the Rialto down the street is, is playing Citizen Kane. And they would have listings for movies, but what it would say for the Rialto is it would just say, feature presentation, you know, and then it might tell you the second feature or something, but they wouldn't even 
put the name of the movie Hmm. in such listings, um, let alone like run ads for it or anything like that. So even though Hearst's newspaper holdings had diminished at that point, they were still considerable. So this was a sizable chunk of, uh, of American newspapers that were telling you about this movie. And that was damaging. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, it's really interesting because when I a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Will Haygood, who has a new history of African-American cinema uh, out. And in one of the things that keeps recurring in that book is controversy leads to more sales. So, you know, controversy of Birth of a Nation leads to more sales, but also controversy of Sweet, uh, Sweet Sweetback's uh, badass song also leads to more sales. I mean, it's it's a really interesting, but the silent treatment does have an effect, I think, more so than than just about anything else you can yeah. do. Um, uh, so, so the, the movie, the movie does come out and it is, it's a, it, it is a modest, you know, success critically and slightly less so commercially, I, I think is fair to say, but you know, I, I, I really, I enjoyed hearing you talk about the fact that this movie is not like some lost rediscovered classic, right? It, from the beginning, it was recognized as one of the, one of the great, uh, works, uh, and, and how has that kind of played through the years? Well, I mean, I think from the beginning, when when they had they screened a rough cut for some Hollywood producers because there was talk of trying uh, to to buy the negative from RKO and just destroying it. Um, LB Mayer, I believe, was one of the people who was offering to chip in the money. And uh, so RKO arranged for this screening and it was industry insiders. And uh, it was held in New York, you know, they flew out. And they said the reaction was just, you know, like stunned appreciation. You know, the people in the industry knew what it was. They recognized its quality. They saw, you know, how revolutionary a lot of what Wells was doing was, you know. Maybe not the first, in fact, frequently not the first film to have done certain things, but the way all of these, like all of these techniques and all of these narrative devices were wrapped up in, into this one movie was, was truly impressive. So I I think um, it, yeah, it, it was not something that had to be discovered you know, by, by cinephiles later on as, as a lost masterpiece. And uh, it, it, I think it started being fairly successful in re-release, even like some years later, um, eventually was being shown on television and stuff. But I guess um, the, it was the sight and sound poll that really um, sort of cemented its reputation Right. So, so it's, so it, it, it's topping the polls. Everybody, everybody loves it. And it is, it is well-recognized. Uh, I think everybody at this point will, will more or less agree, except for the random people who will occasionally say Citizen Kane is so boring. And, uh, I want, I want to throttle them because even <laughs> if you, even if you, I like, you know, even if you are to say, all right, look, I can't, I can't recognize the innovations in this because I'm so used to them and it's become so ingrained in film language. Um, it's still just a fascinating story, right? I mean, yeah. I, I like it's crazy. I mean, I I I find it 
endlessly fascinating. And I think the first time I saw it, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And uh, my father told me to watch it. He said, it's a really, it's a really good movie. It's a, it's about a guy who owns newspapers or something like that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I watched it like that. And I think that was a gift watching it without all the baggage. Mm. I, I when, when Vertigo um, toppled Citizen Kane in this last, I guess that was 2012, we've got another one coming mm -hmm. up yeah. for uh, the Sight and Sound poll. When Vertigo toppled it, I, I was not kidding when I said on my blog, I, I'm, I'm glad, you know, let, let, let people say Vertigo is boring, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> we can have, which it's not. Vertigo is also <laughs> a complete masterpiece. Let me yeah. be clear there, but I'm like, yeah, let, let you know people can aim their pea shooters at a different movie for a while um and, and give citizen kane a break because i do think it's a marvelously entertaining movie and people who say it's boring i think are people who are not used to the rhythms of movies from that era um who maybe don't watch that kind of somber adult drama very often anyway um and probably don't appreciate the dialogue. It's, uh, you know, or maybe they just haven't sat down to watch it with somebody like you or me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, this is, this is, you say, you say it's a somber adult drama and there, there is seriousness to it certainly, but it is, it's also remarkably funny. I mean, it is. Yeah, Wells himself is just, <laughs> is just, you know, uh, is magnetic on screen and, and, and amusing to watch every all of the all of anyway we're i'm preaching to the choir here we don't have to talk about how great <laughs> citizen kane is um uh there there is an interesting thing about citizen kane is how much uh and this is i am sure an artifact of its popularity and its its critical acclaim and all that but there is there is so much argument and debate over who deserves credit for what what you know what what goes what goes into you know who who should who should be you know considered the true auteur author of it you know whatever and it, it going going all the way back to you know Pauline Kael and 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 her very long her book length uh, essentially case for Herman Mankiewicz all the way up to Mank again last year from from Netflix like I, I what what do you make of this as as a historian and as a researcher I mean as as you're looking through. Um, some of these original uh, source materials. What what do you make of the kind of uh, the the conflicts here between between the two different sides, or all the different sides, frankly? I mean, the Robert Carringer went back through like the the records at RKO and script um, records and things, and I think proved quite quite definitively that um, that Orson Welles had a great deal of input into the screenplay. When when Mankiewicz finished his first draft, it was, Christ, like 200 pages. It was just, you know, in incredibly long and um, had a lot of stuff that they wound up tossing out. You know, it, it had to be paired and sharpened and that uh, a lot of that was was Orson Welles contribution you know he like he sort of took the raw materials and then you know there was and there was more back and forth um I think uh that the Mankiewicz partisans and particularly Kale was reacting to the notion that he had nothing to do with it you know leaving him out of the story was it's immensely irritating to them um, for, for, for good reason. Um, he, he did contribute a great deal. And there are 
people besides Orson Welles who contributed a lot to the movie. It would not be the same movie if it had not been lensed by Greg Tolland, you know, uh, and uh, Welles learned a lot from him in terms of how the movie was put together. You know, it's, it's, it's editing. It's uh, the performances, right? Um, They are uniformly superb, but if you're looking at, Citizen Kane, you have to keep coming back to Orson Welles because he is the backstop to all of it, right? He was the the final word on the screenplay. He was the one who, you know, said, who envisioned like one shot, you know, that was going to be from really low down and he couldn't get it low enough down. So he cut a hole in the damn floor. That was Wells. Even John Houseman, who in later years had a, a major ongoing feud with Wells said, you know, well, it's Wells's movie. Um, it, you can't disconnect it from him. You can't take it away. I don't know why anyone would want to. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're related to, you know, like somebody. <laughs> yeah. Who... Uh, yeah. If, if you're not a Mankiewicz, yeah, why are I you? Just... Anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it's a great set. People should, should go out there and buy it. I am, uh, I am, uh, as folks who listen, know a partisan of physical media for a variety of reasons uh, and Criterion in particular, because they are, uh, they do such a good job with the presentation, not just of, you know, packaging and the actual transfer of the disc, but all of the extras on uh, on the disc, and one of my favorite. I mentioned this to you when we were when we were uh, communicating, but one of my favorite is uh, the the video essay that you did for the Whit Stillman uh, collection oh, that came out a couple yeah. years back. I am uh, I'm I'm tremendously fond of that that series of films and uh, and that that bit in particular. What what was it uh, about? Uh, I, I, actually, I have a, I have a, I want to take it a step back. When, when you uh, work on something like this for Criterion, do they come to you and say, Hey, we would like you to do this? Or yeah. do you pitch them on things? Or is there like a master list of like forthcoming movies? And they're like, who wants to do something on, on these movies? I'm just, I'm curious how that all works. <laughs> no, they, I, 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 I don't pitch them. Not, not for the physical releases and not for the channel either. You know, you, you could conceivably pitch them for the current you know, their, mm-hmm. uh, their, their website. Um, but, uh, no, they, they, they put it together. You know, they have producers whose job it is, you know, to envision what's going to go into the release and they, um, and they decide, you know, who they're going to ask to do what, you know? Um, and so it also depends on people's availability. Sometimes people sure. can't sure. do something or whatever. Um, so I was, I was asked, to do um, the Whit Stillman video. And I, I was really happy about it because I, I, I love his films. Um, I think um, I think that the producer on that one might've seen my rave review for Damsels in Distress um, and, uh, and you know, figured I had, yeah. I was in, in tune with his sensibility, so. Yeah. When you're when you're putting a, a, together a video essay like that, is it uh, do you do you do you write first or pick video clips first? I'm, I'm just I, I do not work in video really at all. I'm a I'm a I'm a writer almost exclusively. So I like I don't I I'm, I'm curious what what the process uh, on that is. I mean, is it? Uh, well, well, I mean, I think um, it, it, it can they give you a lot of freedom. 
you know, they, they tell you, you know, what, what they would like for a video like that, or for the one I did with the Irishman, you know, they'll sort they'll, they'll give you like the outlines of the idea, you know, and maybe if they really want it to include this or that, they might mention that, but otherwise you have a fair amount of freedom. You know, they're hiring you for your knowledge and creativity. Um, and uh, so with the Whit Stillman films, I just, I went back and I watched them one by one. I did the same thing for The Irishman, like the gangster movies of Scorsese. And I just, you know, took, took notes, did some thinking, and then I, I, started writing and so then after that um it was sort of a little of both a little of going to the movie and saying oh i want to talk about this move this moment and also um a little of thinking i want to make this point what would be a good way to illustrate it um you don't necessarily have to go through and um and piece by piece tell them exactly which parts of the movie you want them to include. Um, their editors are total wizards. Um, and uh, a lot of times they'll come up with things I never would have thought of, but it's perfect, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you, you want to, at least I wanted to, to give them some freedom to do that. But um, if, if you had seen like the Witt Stillman script, you would have seen that I did have a lot, a number of notations about things, you know, where what clips I thought could be used at which point, or sometimes that's just the scene I'm talking about. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, uh, like I said, uh, that is on the. I think it's on the last days of disco disc is that right it's it, it's it's on the um it, it's it on, on Barcelona I can't remember <laughs> it's it's on the three disc set. Of, oh, okay. um, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so do, doom bourgeois in, in love might be yeah. the, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a trilogy, a Blu-ray trilogy that Ooh, you can pick yeah. up. It's on, it is on one of those discs, uh, very much worth watching. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, uh, you just started a Substack, which is a resurrection of your old blog, self, self styled siren. Uh, what, uh, tell, sell, sell it to the people, give the people the elevator pitch. <laughs> Of the, of, of the pitch. substack. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I. It is. Uh, it's. It's. It's a really interesting look at older older movies, and I don't want to do it injustice. Well, I. I mean, if 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 someone who is listening to this really wanted to see like uh, what's uh, what I have in mind and what it's going to be like, they could go back and look at the old block, right? Because I, I really kind of envision it as a continuation of that. Um, I. Uh, I have some more time to write things on my own. And what the blog was always great for was just writing things that nobody in the right mind was going to have space or time or, you know, like the ability to run it in a real, on a paying website or a, a magazine sure. or whatever. Um, that That's the freedom that you have. Um, it's the freedom you used to have from a blog, and now it's the freedom you can have from Patreon or Substack or whatever your your chosen thing is. So, yeah, if you if you look at the blog and you see the kind of things I wrote, and then you see like I've I've only got a couple of uh, full fledged po uh, posts on the Substack, but uh, yeah. this is you know how I envision it going. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the first was a was a breakdown of the number of adults films, you know, uh, films for adults, to, yeah. to clarify, uh, uh, as opposed to comic book movies, et cetera, as a way to kind of push back against the superhero movies or just the Westerns of, <laughs> yeah. of modern times. It's it's not it is not a similar thing really at all. Um, but but what, what 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 is the focus? What is the focus of the Substack? What what sort of what era? What sort of movies are you are you looking at uh, it- mostly? In general, um, I tend to write about pre-1960 film. Um, and when I was on Twitter a while back, Robert Kohler, um, the critic and programmer, was asking, he was like, well, you know, 1960, I'm interested in that. Is that because, you know, that was really like when the new wave started coming in and everything changed? Um, and I was like, no, it was really a little more arbitrary than that. Um, it, it's just that most of my favorite films are like the, the 1920s through like 1960 or so. Um, I don't, I have, I have certainly watched and enjoyed um, earlier silence, like pre-1920 silence, um, but that's, um, it's, it's uh, not a specialty. It's, it's not something I, you know, feel confident about um, opining on. But uh, the the other decades I do enjoy and do feel like I know something about and have something to say about them. So that's the uh, that that's kind of the the reason why that's there. But I have written about movies in the 60s. I love a lot of the new wave stuff and a lot of the 1960s stuff. I love a lot of 1970s movies. And I've, I've written about them and probably will continue to do so. I have to say that once we start getting to the 1980s, the pickings get <laughs> slimmer for me. You know? um, yeah. uh, but, the, you know, again, that's not to say that that's, you know, all she wrote. I, the Stillman, you know, sure, start, started sure. making movies in what, ni- 1990, I think, was Metropolitan? Mm, yeah, yeah, Metropolitan so. was 90, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, like I said, I'll I'll link to the 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 Substack in there. But I I I I love I love the idea of continue the continuation of blogs into the world of Substacks because I feel like the loss of blogs uh, that we that we have kind of gone through over the last ten years has been bad for uh, a lot of things, discourse that sort of stuff, but also just like knowledge. I think there's there's there there were a, a number of very interesting and very well done uh, blogs that you know, could not really be replicated in, uh, in, in full on paying publications, uh, and, and have a nice space on Substack. I'm biased, of course, because this podcast is hosted on Substack and, you know, we, we, we do, <laughs> yeah. we do stuff there, but, but I think it's, I think it's actually really, I think it's, I think it is actually a net positive in, on, on the whole. Well, it's, um, it's also a net positive in that I, I don't know if people even remember this, but when I joined Twitter, like in 2009, it was billed as a micro blogging service, right? So you were do, doing your, you know, it was, um, it was only 180 characters then sure. you were doing like your, and that was supposed to, you know, re- replace or in any event, supplement blogging. Right. And I think we all discovered very quickly that it's really not comparable. (laughs) You you can be calm and reasoned and well supported in the course of a blog post in a way that you really cannot be 
on Twitter. And I think um, as much as I enjoy Twitter, it's also fragmented uh, attention spans even more. I, I used to say that I didn't like to write blog posts past 2,000 words. Both of my Substack posts, incidentally, are well past 2,000 words. But, that's, <laughs> um, but when I was blogging, I was like, I, I don't want to go much because I think people just quit reading. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that was true then. And then you get to Twitter and I am repeatedly reminded that people often can't be bothered to read all the way to the end of the tweet or to look down to what you're quote tweeting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'm hoping that Substack and Patreon and Medium and some of these these other platforms will give people more of an opportunity to do what they were doing with with blogs and just you know slow down, be a little more thoughtful. Yeah, I think that would be best for everyone. Well, that was everything I wanted to ask, Farron. Uh, was there anything else uh, you you think people should know about Citizen Kane, about the Criterion Collection? about uh, your Substack, anything. I mean, I, I, I always like to close these by asking what I should have asked. Uh, uh, so what, what, uh, what, what would you like the folks to know? Well, I mean, I, I wanted to say that I, I see myself in terms of writing about old movies. I, I see myself as an evangelist and not a scold um, as, as sort of impatient as I get with dislike for Citizen Kane, in the end, what I really want to do is get people to sort of explore the vast reaches of this art form that, you know, our country has contributed to so significantly. And then, you know, and God knows all of the other countries around the world that have, you know, brilliant, amazing cinema that stretches back into the silent era as well. So I, in my heart, I'm convinced that if you think you don't like old movies, if you think you don't like black and white movies, you haven't found the right one. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you haven't found the one that's going to make the penny drop. Um, people have notions of what old movies are, and I think they don't realize the incredible variety of movies that are out there, right? Um, like, like, for example, um, I was reading today uh, about a movie called Big House USA. I think it's like from 1955. And it, it, it breaks um, a taboo, like in its first 20 minutes that you still don't see broken that often in, in movies. And this is a 1955 movie. And then like, later on, it gets into some really, you know, like strong violence, even though it's not shown, it's 1955 and it's black and white. And it's just a very harsh movie with very unlikable characters. I'm sure Quentin Tarantino loves this movie because it, star <laughs> it stars Ralph Meeker and he is all sure. about Ralph Meeker. But um, it, that's just one example. I, I feel like when, when I see people saying, oh, well, you know, I'm just not into it, you know, like, just just wait just wait you know yeah yeah i mean this is this is one of the great things about the criterion channel as well is that they they have a very a very nicely curated selection that kind of rotates through not only of their own titles but uh other other classic films i mean i went through when when 
the Columbia Noir, Noir series dropped. I went through I don't know, half that uh, set just just watch just filling in gaps and watching and like oh I I like those actors I like I like this that and was, it was great I would show that to anyone it was so popular that like I I did an intro for that with my friend Imogen Smith they filmed us separately and we were talking about like the the genesis of Columbia Noir what the visual style was like and things of that nature and uh, the uh, that series was just, it was wildly popular. Noir is um, a style that really appeals to like the modern mindset. You know, I think yeah. like the, 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 the fatalism, the notion that the system is rigged or whatever, people, people hone in on that quite well. But yeah. I, I mean, with, with the channel, I, I would just advise people to, you know, noodle around with it. it. It's got a beautifully set up front page with all of those series and things. It's very easy to just kind of hang out there. But you know, one night when you're bored, just start searching keywords. You will find things like uh, sort of on the back shelves <laughs> that like yeah. are amazing that you had no idea were there. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would my only real uh, advice for the Criterion channel, not that they've asked, but would be would be to to make that browsing just a slight bit easier, like make it make it make it make it a little little more user friendly to get in there and just kind of like really go through the whole uh, the whole library. But um, but it's a great channel. People should definitely uh, check it out if they have not already. Uh, Farron, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, once again, everybody go, uh, sign up for a Substack link in the, is in the, is in the letter and, uh, go pick up that criterion, uh, 4k set. I mean, even if you don't need the image upgrade from your DVD or your Blu-ray, uh, you, you do need all, you do need all of that stuff that's on. Again, it's days, days of material to go through. So check it out. Uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.